Started with verse 20, Exodus chapter 23. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if indeed you obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from the midst of you. None, none of you uh, shall suffer miscarriage or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and inherit the land. I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to Philistia and from the desert to the river, For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. If you're uh, taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, Peaceful Promises. Peaceful Promises. Now that's to us. These aren't peaceful promises to those that are the adversaries of God. So I'm speaking to us, the children of God, and and at this time, the children of Israel. Peaceful promises. Um, How many of you like being in peace? You you like to have peace. The whole world strives for this, at least so they say, right? Uh, This is the constant discussion, whether it's at the United Nations, whether it is at uh, the nat- nat- national level, whether it is uh, among communities, ethnicities, uh, there's always this discussion of peace. But there is no more peaceful and safe place than under the shadow and the protection of the Lord. You say, I, I knew that already. I, I already knew that. It- it's one thing to know it up here. It's a whole other thing to know it here, isn't it? And in, in the, I'm speaking to Christians that have general, they've definitely been saved, but intellectually they believe verses that they read like that. Yeah, yeah, God, God, God goes before me. He, he gives peace. Uh, yeah, I, I, I believe that up here. But is it really realized here in your life? We know that the world around us, it's full of all kinds of things. Sickness, which is mentioned here. Death, wars, uncertainty, a myriad of trials and and all kinds of tribulations. But the promise of God's shelter is a presence right in the middle of adversity, isn't it? 
And any of you that have lived any length of time, I know that, uh, I guess, thinking of the teenagers, I think I started to realize that life is full of adversity as soon as I got out of high school. And I have found that it never stops since then. Amen? It's just new battles. There's one new one after another. Life is full of adversity. And to get from one place to the other uh, is full of all kinds of adversity, all kinds of uh, you know, roadblocks. And this is what the Lord is telling the children. I will get you from point A to point Z, not B, because <laughs> you have to stop along the way. But I'll get you there, and I'll take you there, and I'll give you my full protection, full peace through it all. You know the 23rd Psalm. How many know the 23rd Psalm? And you, you, you've you probably read it numerous times. I'll read it to you just in case you haven't heard it in a while. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's a lot about him, isn't it? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23. Many of you have, probably have it memorized. You memor- some people memorize since their childhood. One of the most well-known passages in Scripture. But is that just, again, something intellectually we know? Or is that something truly we say, wow, yeah, I, I, I've come to know the Lord in that way, that his peaceful promises I experience in my life. I, I definitely feel his rod and staff comfort me. I definitely feel him giving me peace, even in the presence of enemies or adversaries. This is where, again, is my, my, where I become disheartened just for a second, but you know, thinking about these other two pastors, I mean, yeah, they're in the presence of their enemies, no doubt about it. But that's where we have to trust the Lord and lean on Him, not to our own understanding. Not look for, well, there's got to be a side door here that God will, God will kind of use the side doors for him. God doesn't need side doors, does He? He'll bring you straight through, trusting Him. If you're taking notes this morning, um, we'll look at the three sections this morning taking notes, uh, we'll look at before, beware, and blessings. Before, beware, and blessings. The Lord gives these peaceful promises to Israel. And if, capital I-F, if they obey these instructions, it's going to go well with them. They have God's absolute promise that if they obey, it's going to go well. Things are going to, in every situation, God is going to come to their defense. He's going to do things that defy logic. This is why following the Lord, it really, uh, it's always a test of our faith to follow the Lord. Because what the Lord asks us to do a lot of times, again, our 
our puny human brains come up with seemingly better ways to handle things, right? And so God's just telling them right now, just fight the urge. I'm going to send the angel of the Lord before you. Obey what he says, hear what he says, do what he says, and don't provoke him, (laughs) and everything will go well with you. Be aware that he's probably going to say some things at times that you're going to scratch your head and say, why would he ask us to do that? That doesn't seem to make any sense. You know Moses had this question a number of times already. Lord, why would we not? uh, Lord, I looked at a map, and if I look at a map, to get from Egypt to Israel is just a short, we can hug the coastline, you know where the Gaza Strip is in modern-day Israel. Lord, if I hug the coastline, we're there in a couple of days. And God's like, I know, you're going a different way. You're going to end up going to the Red Sea, which he didn't tell him that at the time. He found that out later, right? But the Lord was just, as a matter of fact, the Red Sea was just as smooth a crossing as any other place they could have ever crossed because God is the one that prepared it. And the angel of the Lord will go before the same way. Just like the, the fire by night and the cloud by day that went before, the angel of the Lord is going to go before them Let's look at this first, uh, this first section. Behold, I send an angel over before you in the way to bring you into the land which I have prepared. In this text, in the verses we just read, in the entire text here, there's three promises related to Israel's journey and destination. There's actually more than three promises here but three that we'll look at that relate specifically to the journey and the destination. Uh, The first one is they would be guided and kept in the way. They would be guided and kept in the way. The second is that a place would be prepared for them. It would already be prepared. Isn't it cool if God pre-prepares something for you? You ever had that experience where where you were needing something and, and, and God just provided and you realize man, he just had that perfectly set and arranged in advance for me. A place would be prepared. And then lastly, enemies would be defeated. Because enemies scare us, don't they? You know, Israel would be outnumbered significantly by all their enemies. This would always be the case with Israel, isn't it? They would always be severely outnumbered. And their enemies weren't walking around with plastic butter knives. Their enemies were walking around with significant weapons, and they had a reputation for fear, intimidation, torture, all of those things. So the enemies are significant. Our enemies are significant. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, do we? Our enemies are principalities and powers. I don't know if you realize it, but demonic forces are quite powerful. They can really put a wrench in your day. If, if God, whatever God allows, Job found this out, right? Whatever God allows can be very, very painful to go through. But the Lord promised the enemies would be defeated. But not necessarily all at once. Matter of fact, the text tells us that. Some would be defeated at once, like Jericho would be the case. But some were going to, God was going to drive them out little by little by little. We'll look at this uh, first promise that the Lord declares 
that he will go before them. We'll look at the other two, uh, the journey and destination related promises, when we get to the blessings portion near the end. But this first one, that the Lord would uh, go before them and he would guide them in the way. Uh, now, before we look at this wonderful promise that God would guide them, God would, uh, would be leading them, God would be uh, uh, giving them wisdom and counsel for every move they make, uh, let's first understand the angel of the Lord. Every angel in the Bible, except for the fallen angels, and the Scriptures talk specifically about fallen angels, which are the demons, uh, the demonic forces, but every angel... Every non-fallen angel, every angel that's sent down from heaven, these are the holy angels, is an angel of the Lord. We all understand that, right? All angels are angels of the Lord. Fallen angels are demons. They're not angels of the Lord. Uh, They had an opportunity to be angels of the Lord, but they chose to rebel. But all of the holy angels, and they're mentioned all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament angels are mentioned many times, all angels are angels of the Lord. Just like every believer is a child of God, right? Every believer is a child of God. Every angel is an angel of the Lord. Though angels are mentioned many times in the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, there's only two angels mentioned by name. You guys probably know the names of these two angels. Michael and Gabriel. The only two mentioned with a specific name. Unless, of course, angel of the Lord is a name. We'll get to that in just a sec. But those are the only two that are mentioned with names like Tim, right? Or Paul, or whatever the case, or whatever your name might be, John. or These two angels, Gabriel and, Mike, Gabriel and Michael, are mentioned specifically. Now, Michael is even mentioned in Jude chapter 1, verse 9, as an archangel, right? Michael, the archangel. Uh, that means highest rank, right? So highest rank of an angel. Now, it certainly appears that both Gabriel and Michael have prominent high-ranking roles, not only because they're both mentioned by name, but they're both mentioned more than once, and they're both mentioned both the Old and New Testaments. Daniel mentions them both, and then they're mentioned again in the New Testament. We see Gabriel comes to Mary and Joseph, right? And we see Michael battling with uh, Satan over the body of Moses. So we know that both of them have these high-ranking roles, uh, now, if you read 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, it tells us that when Jesus comes back with the voice of an, an, voice of an archangel, which gives the tone and leads a number of theologians and pastors, I'm personally of this thinking, uh, that there's actually a group of archangels, a group of the highest order, that Michael, now some believe, and again, if you believe that Michael is the only archangel, I don't have a problem with, with that. Uh, but if you believe that there are a group of archangels, let that get turned off. If you believe that there is a group of archangels, um, which, again, I believe that, uh, that there's probably the possibility that Gabriel himself may be one of the archangels. And again, we don't know one way or the other. Michael's mentioned as one, but 1 Thessalonians 4, 6 says, the voice of Anne, as if there may be more than one. And I believe there probably are a group of highest order archangels. But nevertheless, whether it's only Michael and Gabriel has some other role or whether they're both members of this highest order of archangels, this term, the angel of the Lord, 
different than the other times where the Bible just says angels. And the angels shall minister unto thee. Remember, when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, Satan quoted, doesn't it say the angels will give charge over thee? That verse doesn't say anything about angel of the Lord. It says the angels will give charge at plural. Just a group of God's ministering servants would come lest you dash your foot. Of course, that, that, that particular promise is to all the saints of God, that the angels would be there. Uh, and we know in the New Testament, we could even unwittingly entertain angels. That's why we're supposed to be kind and hospitable to everyone, because we might get to heaven and find out, you know, you were pretty rude to uh, an angel. No, I, I don't know. I think that we, thankfully, we won't have condemnation uh, in heaven, but God, again, may kind of revisit us with the same test here on earth. But this angel of the Lord term, it's found a number of times in the Old Testament. In some cases, such as Genesis chapter 16 uh, with Hagar, the context seems to equally support, and follow me on this, seems to equally support that the angel of the Lord is an angel, much like Michael or Gabriel, or, and I'm speaking specifically of Genesis 16 and uh, when the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar, or... Uh, you could make the argument that the angel of the Lord here is none other than a pre-incarnation Jesus Christ. I'm speaking of Genesis 16. And there are a few other passages where the angel of the Lord, it's not real clear if the angel is just one of God's ministering servants, such as Michael or Gabriel, or if we're talking about someone above the angels, and there's only, the only ones above the angels, it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as far as in power right? In position, we will actually at some point be above. <laughs> Paul said, do you not even know? We will judge angels. We will actually have a position. Uh, and I don't know, I don't even know what that means. That does not mean, don't take that to mean definitively we will have a position above angels. That may be speaking of the fallen angels. We don't, again, some things in scripture are not really clear. But here's the, the point. This angel that comes to Hagar may have been a ministering angel, or it may be Jesus himself. Some of the text seems to go, you could support either way. Now, but the one thing we know about angels, angels speak for God, they don't speak as God. Make sense? Angels speak for the Lord, but they don't speak as the Lord. Same is true for you and I as a pastor. I have to share God's word on a regular basis. I hope that you share God's word on a regular basis, but I don't ever speak as God, but I do speak on behalf of God. This is what thus saith the Lord. I, 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 it's nice when you don't, because I'm not anyone's judge or jury, only the Lord is. And angels don't speak as God, but they do speak for him. But the angel of the Lord here clearly speaks as God. Two examples of this also or was when the angel of the Lord appears to Abraham and Moses. In Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 and 17, listen to this. It says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. All right, so far it could be any angel. All right? I'm not convinced that that's Jesus, you might say. Because an angel of the Lord called out of heaven. Angel could call out of heaven. And said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Well, that's not an angel now. By myself I have said, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants. The Lord speaks as the angel of the Lord. 
I by myself have sworn. Angels don't say, I by myself I have sworn, says the Lord. They would say, thus says Michael or Gabriel. So we know that Genesis 22, uh, chapter 22, this angel Lord is none other than the Lord himself. And I believe in the pre-incarnation person of Jesus Christ. Then in Exodus chapter 3, Moses, who of course is the one leading the children of Israel in our text, he himself encounters the Lord and encounters the angel of the Lord, remember at the burning bush in Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3, verse 2 through 4. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he, uh, so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned and looked aside, God called to him from the midst of the bush. The text tells us who the angel of the Lord is. It's God. God calls from the bush and says, Moses, Moses. So the angel of the Lord, I personally believe, uh, that the angel of the Lord, as we see it in the Old Testament, is the Lord Jesus. But I do, I do think that it's possible that in certain places it may be an angel of the Lord. But in this text here, in the 23rd chapter, and in Genesis 22, and in Exodus chapter 3, I think definitively the text itself tells us that the angel of the Lord is one of Jesus' titles. Now, you know Jesus has many titles, right? He has many names. But one of his names the angel of the Lord. In this passage, the angel of the Lord doesn't speak specifically, but God makes clear that the angel of the Lord here sits in complete lordship and authority and judgment over the children of Israel. Who does that sound like? I have turned all things over to my son, right? In complete lordship, authority, whatever he does, whatever he says. And it even tells us the angel of the Lord pardons sin. Now, we know that no angel pardons sin. Amen? Angels can't pardon your sin. But the angel of the Lord, because it's not an angel like the other angels, it's Jesus himself. He can pardon sin, and God is in his name. Now, we just went through these things, if you're with us in the Christmas season. Uh, Verse 21, it parallels the earthly ministry of Jesus. What was Jesus' name going to be? Emmanuel. His name is, my name is in him. What does that mean? God with us. My name is in him. As far as listen to him where it says, beware, obey his voice. In Matthew uh, Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, God said, this is my son and whom I am well pleased. Hear him, exclamation point. Hear him. Listen to him. Even the Pharisees and the scribes, in Luke chapter 5, verse 21, the scribes and Pharisees, they began to reason, saying, who is this who blasphemes? Who can forgive sins but God? They asked the very question, say, who does he think he is forgiven? How could the angel of the Lord forgive sins, and if he isn't God? Of course, the angel of the Lord is God. He's God the Son, Jesus Christ. But here, the Lord promises to go before the children of Israel in the person of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, that which our messianic brothers and sisters call Yeshua, which is the uh, very same name as Joshua, right? You get Joshua, 
Yeshua, Jesus, they're all of the same family name. And they would someday know God doesn't give them the name Messiah here. He doesn't give them the name Savior here. He tells them it's the angel of the Lord. But later, when Jesus would come, the nation of Israel would be revealed who the angel of the Lord was. Because he starts pardoning people's sins in their presence, doesn't he? He starts telling them he is God in their presence. This would come later, but right now God says, whatever he says, obey him, for he will not pardon you. Don't provoke him. Everything he says, he will lead you and guide you, and he'll go before you. Isn't this so much like Jesus with us? In the same way that he, he promises to go before the children of Israel and make sure that they arrive at their destination safely. Isn't this the way the Lord Jesus promises to bring us to our destination safely? Right? You guys know I love Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Right? He'll keep, us from, he'll keep us not only in the way, but he keeps us from stumbling to the place that we never get back up. That's really the essence of that. Because, by the way, how many of you have stumbled since you've been saved? But a stumble to the point that you don't get back up, that's not the Lord. He'll always get you back up. He's the good shepherd. The good shepherd does not say, all right, you lazy lamb, you've been down there long enough. If I had a shotgun, I'd take you out, you know? That's not what the Lord does with us, is it? He gets the lamb back up, nurses it back to full health, if need be, to bring it safely to the destination. But they would be guided. He'll not only uh, keep you in the way, but uh, guide you along the way. We, t- uh, we know in 1 Peter 1.5 that we are kept by the power of God through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We're kept by the power of God. And so the Lord will go before us as he was going to go before the children of Israel. So the first, just this promise. God says, look, you're going to have to believe that I'll go before you. I'll go before you. But you're going to have to obey every word I say. Don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left. Let I tell you to turn to the right and turn to the left. Obey what I say. And it'll go well. Let's look at the warning here. Beware, verse 21. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. Uh, in the complete Jewish Bible, it reads like this. Uh, the same 21st, 22nd verse says, Pay attention to him. Listen to what he says and do not rebel against him, because he will not forgive any wrongdoings of yours, since my name revide, uh, resides in him. But if you listen to what he says and do everything I tell you, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. Now remember this warning, this warning is specifically to a nation, right? Remember who we're talking about here. The warning that God gives is to the nation state of Israel, right? Two million plus people, they have judges, they have Moses, they have Aaron, they have Joshua, they have Caleb, they have leadership, and they have a group of people, so they are a nation, just like we're the United States of America God is telling the leaders this warning. Do not deviate. If you deviate as a nation, I will not forgive you. You won't be pardoned. 
However, there is clear application to each and every person, too. Would you agree? Plenty of application to us as individuals. To beware, to pay attention, to listen, to not rebel, don't disobey. This word provoke, it means in the Hebrew, marar, marar. It means to show bitterness. Another, you know, so if you kind of take these and, and kind of uh, uh, compile them together uh, to rebel against God or to disobey God, but also in the, in the same meaning here is don't show bitterness towards God. A lot of people are bitter towards God, aren't they? God warns you, do not be bitter towards me. Uh, because things will go wrong in your life and you will assume at times that God let you down. You know, Joseph could have become really bitter towards God, couldn't he? Wouldn't you think he had a lot, a lot of opportunities to be bitter towards God? Let's see, your brother sells you into slavery. Brother is plural. You end up in prison because you said no to temptation. This is why some pastors are afraid, right? Well, I said, I said what the Lord told me to do, and it went bad for me. Yeah. But don't become bitter and don't lose faith. Trust that God is still in control. And that's what the Lord's going to tell the children of Israel. You're going to have times that it's going to look like they were convinced they were dead meat when the Egyptians were coming against them at the Red Sea, weren't they? Wailing and crying and grabbing onto Moses and saying, you know, why did you do this? It wasn't over, though they thought it was over. Thankfully, they had a leader who would not turn away from the words of the Lord. Moses, what if Moses would have listened to them? Eh, Exodus is over, (laughs) right? (laughs) End of Exodus, it ended at the Red Sea, but he didn't. He continued to believe the Lord, and so we can't become bitter towards God, and bitter means, you know what the word bitter means according to uh, Webster's, it means it's characterized by intense antagonism or hostility. People that are bitter become antagonistic and hostile to the things of God. And God says, if you become antagonistic and hostile towards my things, it's going to be really bad for you. You will not hurt God. You you love when an atheist uh, shakes their fist and says, if you're God, come down here. God is not bothered by that. I love Ray Comfort's book, God Does Not Believe an Atheist. It's a great title. It's a great read, too. You should read it, you know? He doesn't believe in atheists. But atheists, I believe, all believe in him deep down because the Scriptures make it pretty clear that everyone sees his invisible attributes. We're in that in Romans chapter 1. We'll be in that Wednesday night. Now, Israel, they're now representing God to the nation. And if they were to choose to rebel as a nation, if they refuse as a nation uh, to uh, refuse the voice and the commands of God, to become hostile to his ways, they would be, they would be a completely accountable for the consequences. You all agree there's consequences. The wages of sin is death, right? Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. There's consequences to what we do, isn't there? Always going to be consequences. You can be warned. I never forget the time me and my wife were uh, at the melting pot in, um, in uh, where, Boca Raton or Plantation, down in Florida when we lived in Fort Lauderdale. 
the waiter warned me not to grab the handle of the pot. Seems like a pretty easy thing to remember. I didn't remember it. Grabbed the whole thing. I had like, I mean, my hand was burned pretty good. Uh, there's consequences. When, and you could say, well, I wasn't really paying attention. There's consequences to not really paying attention, isn't there? Parents have said this to kids lots of times. Because kids have said, well, I didn't hear you say that. I said it three times. I wasn't listening. Consequence for not listening. It doesn't matter what the reason is. God, that's why God says not only, do you ha- not only beware to do what he says, but listen. Didn't, did, you notice the Lord actually said they had to be listening? How do you listen to God in your personal life? You have to be in his word, and you have to be in prayer. Well, I don't hear anything from God. That's why I make really bad choices and end up in really bad places, right? Yeah, there's going to be consequences if we don't listen to what he says. And then when we hear what he says, we really digest it. And then we say, Lord, I, I want to do that, but I don't have the faith to do it. He says, we'll dive in more, and I'll give you the faith. Because God actually knows how weak we are. He knows, you know, the children of Israel were going to have to go in the land, and God says, all right, I want you to break down all their idols. I want you to go in there and get rid of this. I'll tell you which people to get rid of immediately and which ones I'll kind of wean out little by little, but do exactly the way I said it. Sometimes you'll be afraid. Sometimes you'll feel bold as a lion. Either case, you're going to have to listen and obey, and little by little, your faith will grow, and you'll start to say, wow. It really makes sense to do what he says and not do what I think. Notice the warning, though. I will not pardon. God is holy. He's righteous. Uh, The damage and destruction that comes with the rebellion is inevitable. Always inevitable. Whatever damage and destruction comes is inevitable. It's unstoppable. Hosea 8.7. You might have heard this verse before. Hosea 8.7. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. You ever thought about that verse? Anyone ever heard that verse? They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind? What's that mean to you? Um, That verse was also a national warning. It was to the nation of Israel. In fact, it wasn't just a warning. It was actually a pronouncement of judgment. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. First time, when I first read those verses, I was like, what does that mean? Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. Wind is, you know... Whirlwind is huge, powerful. It was also prophesied to Israel. But Israel, like many other nations before and since, many other nations, right? Uh, Even like our own nation, which we continue to pray for. Even if they think that what they are knowingly do. I really think sometimes people know they're disobeying God. How about you? Deep down, they know that's wrong. But... They convince themselves that it's not a big deal and that God won't care that much. Individuals do this. Nations do this. National leaders do this. They convince themselves that, all right, I kind of believe that God is right, but I don't think he'll mind me tweaking this. Saul did that, didn't he? Remember how much it bothered God that Saul just tweaked the, the command? Oh, I did 90 2.6% of what you said, right? He probably had a percentage in his mind. The guy won't mind if I just alter it a little bit. He'll care some, but not that much. It's almost with, I, I got to thinking about this, it's almost as if people uh, that have a level of biblical belief in God make a calculated risk of what specific sins might cost them if they do them. 
I, I think people actually, some consciously, but certainly subconsciously, make these calculated risks. Here's how, kind of, I'll kind of give you an example of how this might play out. Now, of course, their calculation, remember their calculation is not based on reality. It's based on their own version of reality. It's not based on God's truth. It might be something like this. Let's take a person who says, I'm going to lie to my boss. I'm going to cheat on my expenses. I'm going to cheat on my taxes. I'm going to watch some filthy, filthy thing on TV that I shouldn't watch. Um, and, you know, perhaps, perhaps what God might do to me for that is, you know, um, may, may probably, probably what's equal to that is my yard won't grow as green this year as I want it to. I'll have a few more weeds in the yard. I probably won't be able to lose those last two pounds I've wanted to lose. Um, and I might get a nail in my tire. I can live with that. I think that's how people think sometimes. I think that's how nations think sometimes, right? All right. Maybe our corn crop might drop by 10%. We can live with that. As if we can do what we want to do, and, all right, so my yard's a little browner. Okay, I can change a flat. God, in exchange for me tweaking things, but that's not what Hosea says, is it? Hosea says, you sow the wind and reap what? The whirlwind. Do you notice how the commensurate final judgment is nowhere near what you calculated? That's what that verse means. You calculated wind for wind? God says, it doesn't work that way. Your sin has an exponential corrosive like cancer doesn't. One cell of cancer explodes into many cells. Great investments grow, and great investments in sin grow too. Saul sowed the wind, but he reaped the whirlwind. That's what it means. It means that when nations now, what's problematic for nations to understand, and they can't see it, and individuals can't see it either too, because God a lot of times doesn't judge the wind immediately, and you keep sowing more wind. Unwittingly thinking that you added another wind judgment, another nail in the tire, and God says, but that's not what's happening. You won't have any tires. Period. Forget the nail on the tire. You won't have the tires. So the wind that you keep sowing, or that Israel would, God's warning, if you sow little things of disobedience, you don't listen to my angel of the Lord, it will not be commensurate with what you think will take place. What we see with nations, certainly with Israel, is that what happens is God endures so long with people. He's so patient. Moses, David, Paul, Peter. Did you know they all mention the long-suffering of God? Moses, David, Paul, and Peter all mention the long-suffering of God. And this long-suffering causes people not to become more uh, repentant. It becomes, sometimes, people become more hard-hearted and more self-deceived into thinking, he's never going to judge this, ever. America thinks this. That the breadbasket of the world will always be the breadbasket of the world because it's always been that way. And maybe, maybe if we don't go to church on Sundays and we change his word a little bit, okay, maybe unemployment will rise to 
I can deal with that. I'm okay with that. I'm not saying I'm okay. I'm saying people think that way. Of course, they wouldn't think that way if they're part of the 11%, but they don't think they'll be a part of the 11%. And so what happens is when judgment finally comes, Hosea is saying in Hosea 8-7, back to the verse, wind, you sowed the wind and you reaped the whirlwind. Hosea is saying you will think that the judgment is completely out of scale with what you personally are doing. But don't forget, God doesn't forget the previous generations and generations, and all of a sudden, a bunch of winds become a whirlwind. You know that when the, tornado, when the hurricanes begin to develop off Africa, remember how tiny they are? You ever watch the weather? They're these little tiny, and some soft winds are blowing off the Sahara Desert, but then they come together and thousands of little wind strands start to come together. And what happens when thousands of thins from a nation start to come together? It becomes a whirlwind. Category 5. Cataclysmic. Look at our own nation. You see these things taking place. But as Hosea proclaims, it's as if all those little hot winds of rebellion that come out of the mouth All the little hot winds of rebellion come back as a catastrophic whirlwind. This is what the Lord is warning. He says, do not, do not, do not deviate from the angel of the Lord. He tells you, you obey. If you disobey, that disobeying is off course and before long you will be looking exactly like the Canaanites all around. You'll be serving their gods. It'll be a snare to you. You will live just like them. We see, uh, turn real quick. I've got to move. Deuteronomy 28, turn real quick. I won't read all of Deuteronomy 28 because it's a big chapter, but I just want to point it out. I've pointed it out here numerous times before. Uh, I love what uh, R.A. Torrey calls Deuteronomy 28. He calls it the, what does he call it? The, the amazing chapter of Deuteronomy 28. It's a good way of thinking of Deuteronomy 28. Why does he say that? Well, he says that specifically because the last few verses in the Bible not only appear to be, but they are prophetic. If you're in our prophecy series, I uh, covered a lot of fulfilled prophecy. One that we didn't cover is some of the things that are prophesied in Deuteronomy 28. Now, we won't read it all, but look at Deuteronomy 28, and you can just mark in the margin of your Bible. There are 14 verses that outline the blessings. And there are 54 verses that outline the cursing and warning and judgment. Because you sow the wind, you reap what? The whirlwind. So God says, all right, I'm going to give you ample opportunity. The blessings are beautiful. They're at the beginning. First things are the blessings. Now it shall come to pass, verse 20, uh, 28, uh, chapter 28, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then it's beautiful. All these things, uh, again, similar things that we see in Exodus 23. They won't be barren. You'll have bread. You won't get sick. Uh, it's just beautiful things. God could have said, you won't need Tylenol. You won't need Robitussin. You won't need amoxicillin, right? You're not going to need the surgeries that everyone else needs. What a great promise. You would think anyone would sign up for this. Uh Uh-uh. Most people don't, and neither did Israel in the the long run. But uh, verses 15 through 56, um, no, sorry, 15 through 68, 
uh, the 54 verses, you see all kinds of other things take place. Look at, um, um, look at starting with uh, verse 51. And they shall eat the increase of your livestock and produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave gra- uh, grain or new wine or oil, the increase of cattle or the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you. They shall besiege you at uh, your gates, verse 52, until your high and fortified walls, which you trust, come down throughout all your land. They shall besiege you at your gates. Uh, you shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord has given you. People would actually someday, God says, if you turn away from the angel of the Lord, you'll actually cannibalize. Literally, they did this. The prophecy here is actually up in verse 49. It says, the Lord will bring a great nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you do not understand. This is none other than the Roman Empire, which symbol was the eagle, because the Israelites understood most of the Oriental languages. They did not know Latin at all. The eagle would come against them in the times of Jesus. None other than the angel of the Lord would appear when the eagle was upon them. Uh, interestingly enough, not coincidentally. But uh, again, I don't have time to read all that, but I just wanted to point out in the 28th chapter is a much deeper comparison of the blessing versus the judgment. Turn back to the 23rd chapter as we um, kind of finish up our last few things here. The two specific warnings to Israel were disobedience and idolatry. Disobedience and idolatry. Of course, disobedience will lead to idolatry. As soon as you stop obeying God and doing what he says to do, you will replace it with new things that are opposite of his nature, right? In other words, if you said, hey, the Lord says, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, I need to be in church with other believers. You say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to forsake the assembling. You will fill this time with something else, and it will become idolatry. So they go hand in hand. But this is true of everything that we do. In the New Testament, 1 John the book of 1 John, in chapter 2, the test of knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior is a life of obedience. The ending of the whole book in the 21st verse of chapter 5 is keep from idols. Obedience and idolatry, just as in the Old Testament, over in the New Testament, the good news is we actually have been given the Holy Spirit. We don't follow the angel of the Lord well, we, have the, we know the angel of the Lord. He's in our hearts, Jesus Christ, right? But we've been given the Holy Spirit, and he is the one who leads us and guides us and keeps us in the way. Thankfully, though, thankfully, it's not just obedience to the Lord that would keep Israel and us from the consequences of rebellion and sin. But the Lord also, it's not just the Lord wants to have them obedient. He wants to bless them. Do you, do you believe God wants to bless you? And I'm not talking about he wants you to have a Rolls Royce this year. He wants to bless you in the eternal, accepted in the beloved blessing, which will come in a lot of different shapes, sizes, and different things because God knows every person needs something different. Some things we need the same, like food, shelter, clothing. Those things, he, Jesus said, don't even worry about that. Your Father knows you need those things. But... And I also want to say other, one other thing. Different, too, than Israel. We're not given this, if we fail, we won't be pardoned. If you're saved, you actually get a different 
under the new covenant, you get a different uh, warning. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. If I sin and fall, I'm not going to be condemned, and I will not be pardoned, but I will be chastened. Now, some chastening is not, not all chastening is, is really painful, because some chastening, if you listen to the first chastening, you know, you know the parents that give the little swat to the two-year-old, that's not that bad. If the two-year-old takes the swat and obeys, that chastening, it was nothing but a, oh, snap me back in reality. I'm not supposed to be playing by the sharp edge over here, that kind of thing. That chastening is not painful, but if you refuse and you're saved, your chastening will get very painful, very painful. If, you, if the Lord, if you're his, if you're not his, well, that's a different problem altogether, isn't it? Because I don't chasten the neighbor's kids. And God doesn't either. He brings them to judgment if they will not repent. So we have a different, that's called grace, right? We get God's grace, his manifold grace. But let's look at this last piece, uh, just a couple of minutes, blessing. They would have a place prepared for them. The Lord was going to prepare the, uh, the, the area of Canaan for them. They would come there. He would drive out the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites. Uh, he would bring them into the land. Verse 25, I'll bless you, I'll bless your bread, your water, I'll take sickness away from you. It uh, goes on to say that um, you would not be barren. And I believe that it's not just the people who wouldn't be barren, it would be the livestock that wouldn't be barren. That they would be fruitful and multiply in so many ways. You know, Pastor Chuck, he has a great quote. He says, we are the ones who limit our blessings. We're the ones. Not the Lord. Because if we don't walk in obedience to Christ, if we don't love Him instead of ourselves, we're limiting our own blessings. A.W. Tozer said, Perhaps it takes a purer faith to praise God for unrealized blessings than for those we once enjoyed or enjoy now. A lot of times, because you can't feel a current blessing, you say, Well, I, I guess this isn't working. But faith moves forward and says, God has promised it. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus, right? You have to trust him. God says he's, he's going to bless. I will do as he says. It doesn't seem to make sense, Lord, but I'm going to do this anyway. God's prepared a place for us. Ephesians 9.10, where his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He's prepared us for good work. Some of you, as I mentioned earlier, God's prepared you to, not only does he want you to work with the children downstairs, but he's going to really bless you in doing it, and he's going to bless the kids. He's prepared that in advance. Before time began, he already prepared it for you. He does not prepare us to sit on our hands, but to go forward. Most children of Israel, where were they supposed to go? Forward. Follow him forward. Not retreating. Forward. And let, you know, Jesus, let's face it, the greatest preparation is what he's preparing for us right now, right? John 14, 3. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I come again to receive you myself, you'll be there also, right? Isn't it great that Jesus not only prepares our life here now, I'm 43. I'm easily past the midway point of my life for the life expectancy of, of a male in the United States. Now, I look more and more forward to the final place of preparation. How about you? That you're, but I want 
to know what he's prepared for me in 2013 and 2014 and 2015, and that this church will continue to mature and we will become faithful disciples. Those things he's prepared for us, but I know he's also prepared an eternal place with his Father. And that's a picture of the promised land, as you all know, right? That's the other picture here, that, that the Lord, the angel of the Lord will not only bring the saints to Canaan, he'll bring the saints to the heavenly Canaan, which Abraham looked forward to, and Moses looked forward to, and David looked forward to. The real place of preparation at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Other thing that I want to point out, last piece here, is the enemies defeated. They were going to give, they were going to get victory over their enemies. You know, F.B. Meyer said this. I, I love F.B. Meyer and the things that he wrote in the 1800s. He said, if you really believe in Almighty God, you will be sure that falsehood must ultimately fail and righteousness finally win. And you will meet fraud by faith, cunning by conscience, violence by divine virtue. Goliath may wear armor, but that is no reason that David should wear it. Remember how the Lord has said, I will keep thee. When the children of Israel were going to go into Canaan, the Lord says, look, I'm going to be your armor. I'm going to be your protection. Psalm 910 says, and those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. The safest place on planet earth is with Jesus. Not being a doomsday prepper. It's not. That's not the safest place. Right? Not the safest place is to go live on an island in Fiji, far away from all the problems of mankind. There's no safe place except for the hand of the Lord, right? It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of Jerusalem with bombs coming in. There's no safe place unless you're in the hand of the Lord. And I love that he says, look, when you get there, I'll even send hornets to drive them out. Hornets! Not a team of lions, hornets. Now, what's really cool about this is no doubt these people have lived around the hornet's nest for a long period of time. But, you know, you could see the, the, the community saying, have you been getting stung lately? Yeah, I started getting stung here and there, but lately I'm getting stung like 20, 30 times a week. And when it starts to get, and you're getting stung about 100 times a day, say, you know what? We're not liking this land anymore. And they just start to move out. God will push them out using hornets. I sometimes, you know, I'm a Miami Hurricane fan. I sometimes kid with our daughters. When we play Georgia Tech, I call them the Bumblebees. But, you know, I have more respect for that title now, you know? The Yellow Jackets. Because they're they're all in the same family, right? That God can use a something like hornets, and he's like, you're not going to have to lift a sword in that case. You're not going to have to lift a weapon. You're going to get there, and people are going to say, why are the homes empty? How do we just walk in? You're not going to believe this, but hornets have been attacking the people for months now, and they decided to leave. They left everything. But then when the children of Israel get there, guess what? The hornets don't attack them. In fact, they're going to actually enjoy a land of milk and honey. comes from bees. 
not from hornets per se, but in the same family, bees won't be attacking them. They'll provide them with honey. God will turn the tables. Isn't that cool to know that God will use, you think you've got an enemy you can't defeat. Goliath thought he could not be defeated. God could have used a team of hornets against him if he wanted to and brought him to, matter of fact, you get stung about a thousand times, you're dying. The wasp, I was reading about the venom that's in hornets. It's pretty toxic stuff. It's three primary chemicals, and the more you get stung by it, it just, it can shut your entire body down. They're no joke when they're attacking in full force. And God can use anything in the world to protect his saints and to defeat the enemies of those that stand against him. John 16, as we come to a close, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is a true promise of peace to those of us that continue to follow the Lord Jesus. Amen?